thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, it's episode two in our new series about the ideas behind American presidential elections. We've reached 1828 and what is perhaps the first genuinely populist election in American political history, an election that changed everything. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. To subscribe at a special rate, just go to lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. We ended the last episode, Gary, with you saying that the big change that's coming, not the only one, but one of the biggest, is the relatively rapid expansion of the franchise. So we're going to be moving from 1800 to the election we're talking about, 1828, from a narrowly constructed franchise to something much, much more involving the people. And the numbers are stark here. So roughly 75,000 people voted in 1800. In the 1828 election, we're close to 1.2 million, just under 1.2 million. So this is a huge increase. And the really big increase is from 1824. So in 1824, the franchise had grown to 350,000 roughly. But that's a massive advance in four years in the space of one electoral cycle to more than a million people voting. And it changed the character of American politics. And the symbol of this change is the person who won in 1828, Andrew Jackson. Well, it signifies the arrival on the historical stage of the people, still sharply restricted white men. But one of the big differences is that property qualifications are in the process of being eliminated in every state. So it becomes a universal white manhood suffrage for the franchise, which it had not been until that time. And that meant a lot more people were eligible to vote. I think we have to say one more word about 1824, because there was a sense that the people's choice in 1824, which was Andrew Jackson, had been denied the presidency because he had gotten the most electoral votes in 1824, but he did not have a majority. He had a plurality, so it went back to the House of Representatives. And his opponent, John Quincy Adams, cut a deal with Henry Clay from Kentucky. Henry Clay agreed to tell his people to transfer his votes to Adams, making Adams the person with the majority in the Electoral College. So the country was facing the situation where the person who had gotten the most votes, Jackson, had been stripped of the presidency. Now, it was called the corrupt bargain. It was called vile. We would recognize it as not something that extreme by parliamentary standards today, two parties coming together to form a coalition governing majority. But for then to deny Jackson what was his due was seen as a crime. And this helped mobilize the support for Jackson and the dramatic growth in numbers of people voting from 1824 to 1828. And his significance is magnified by the circumstances of who he was and how different he was from other any other president. Oh, the presidents up until that point had all been from either the Virginia gentry or the Boston elite. And after all, John Quincy Adams was the son of John Adams. They are dynasties. They are, they are handing things back and forth to each other. Uh, Jackson came from nothing, orphaned at a young age, born in Carolina, South Carolina, but ends up in Tennessee, works his way up by his, his own smarts, instincts, abilities into a position of prominence. He's no longer a poor man in 1820s. He's part of the Tennessee gentry. He has his own plantation called the Hermitage. He has slaves. He, he is a major figure in the state. He has been a general. He's been a senator. So he is himself part of the elite, but never quite sees himself 
in that way. He's the first president from the Trans-Appalachian West. Tennessee was the West of America in the 1820s and the first person to break out of the dynastic realm of the Eastern Seaboard. And he also has a connection to the people that no other presidential president had had and arguably no presidential candidate had had with the possible exception of Aaron Burr. Once again, he had the popular touch. Uh, He was a tremendously popular general with his men. He expressed a comfort and devotion to them that none of the Eastern presidents had expressed. And so he was seen, despite his wealth and prestige in the 1820s, as being a genuine man of the people. And one expression of this is how he orchestrates not his arrival in Washington, but after his inaugural address, who he welcomes into the White House. There's a marvelous quote I'd like to read from a political scientist writing in 1900. His his name is Mosi Ostrogorsky. And this is how Ostrogorsky talks about Jackson inviting the frontiersmen into the White House to join in the celebration of his inauguration. These are Ostrogorsky's words from 1900. The crowd broke into the White House, filled all the rooms in a twinkling, pell-mell with the high dignitaries of the Republic and the members of the Corps Diplomatique. In the great reception hall, men of the lower orders, standing with their muddy boots on the damask-covered chairs, were a sort of living image of the taking possession of power by the new master. When refreshments were handed round, a tremendous scramble ensued. Crockery, cups, and glasses were smashed to pieces. Rough hands intercepted all the ices, so much so that nothing was left for the ladies. The fury with which the people flung itself on the refreshments was destined very soon to become highly symbolic. This is a story of a new kind of man with a new kind of constituency taking possession of the reins of power in Washington, D.C. New kind of man, new kind of supporters. I take the reference at the end of that to be also the beginnings of what was known as the spoil system. These people came with Jackson to Washington and he was going to reward them, including the beginnings of the idea that a new president cleans out the people who are established in town and puts his own people in positions of power and indeed rewards them with jobs. So that's coming. But another word that is sometimes associated with this sea change in American politics is this is the beginning of a form of populism. Now that word has come to mean a lot of different things and we're going to talk in future episodes about more specific meanings of it. There have been populist parties in America. And we're going to take that story up to the present day. So again, there's always a danger with these words that you apply them in ways that are anachronistic. Nonetheless, a lot of what you describe does sound like a form of populist politics, that connection with the people, the outsider status, the idea that this man was coming in to undo an established set of relationships, and the reaction against 1824. So he was the defeated candidate in 1824. And part of the fuel of populism can be the sense that an election has been stolen, right? It's been taken away from you. You might say in a parliamentary system, sure, you get coalitions, but this is not a parliamentary system. And the corrupt bargain was a conspiracy on some accounts. You know, it was a it was a deal. It was an exchange of jobs by two men to keep the man of the people out. It's quite populist, isn't it? Yes, it is, although we have to be careful how we use that term. And I would say in the U.S., populism has both a positive and negative connotation, whereas in European politics, it's pretty much all negative in the sense that, yes, someone is posing as a champion of the people, but they are likely to be fraudulent in some ways, or if they're not fraudulent, if they're genuine, they do not respect necessarily the root of law or impediments to the ability of the leader to express directly through his own person the will of the people. So populism in the European context is often associated with skepticism about constitutions, rule of law. It's all a conspiracy anyway, so I'm just going to put my 
loyalists to my people in charge of the judiciary, in charge of the civil service. I'm going to weaponize every aspect of government. And there are elements of this in Jackson. He tilts against and then ultimately takes down the Bank of the United States, uh, which had been existing since the 1790s, uh, seeing it as an instrument of elite power. He's very suspicious of the elites that he's tilting against on the eastern seaboard. He wants to bring a new spirit and a new openness and a new transparency to government. And he also is so angry about conspiracy in high places that he's unabashed about putting his supporters in positions of patronage and rewarding them for their loyalty. So he is accused of implementing the spoil system. And the using the word spoils is itself a giveaway. It's connoted by the opponents of this system that something untoward is being done here, and it's not appropriate for the proper functioning of government. So in these ways, Jackson is a populist in terms that we can understand him, but he is also fiercely committed to the Constitution and its enforcement. He's fiercely committed to the rule of law. He's fiercely committed to the territorial integrity of the United States. He does not hesitate to unleash his fury on his opponents, but he's, he's a constitutionalist and a believer in the American system of government, and his coming to power is not expressive of a desire to push all that aside, but to make the Constitution work more perfectly and as it was meant to. And so he accompanies his rise to power with an emphasis on the law and the Constitution and its execution as he understands it. He's committed to the territorial integrity, but also the territorial expansion of the United States. And as you say, he's, by the geography of the time, a Westerner as much as he is a Southerner. Nonetheless, if you look at the electoral map, so he wins a pretty resounding victory. He's a popular populist, which they aren't all. And the division is pretty clear. The Northeast is still its own thing, and it's still the land of the Adamses, as it were. He's the candidate of the South and the West. How much of this is still he is the candidate of the South? And how much of that vision that he has for America, so yes, respecting the rule of law, yes, respecting the Constitution, a vision of a strong, growing, prosperous nation, how much of it is also a racial vision of America? It's very much a racial vision of America. He, he's an enslaver. And he also oversees the ethnic cleansing of indigenous populations from the eastern states across the Trail of Tears into a territory that's got to be considered Indian country and ultimately will become known as the state of Oklahoma. He built a reputation as being a savage and ruthless Indian fighter. He had a vision of territorial expansion that sometimes when he was a general put him at odds with the civilian leadership of the United States. And at times, especially in Florida, undertook campaigns without clear authorization from Washington, D.C., so that he could do what he felt he needed to do to clear America, both of its internal enemies and also to fight the external enemies, his reputation soars when he beats the British in the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. So he's a warrior, and he is committed to elements of the Jeffersonian vision, which means once territorial integrity has been accomplished, once America has been cleared of its internal enemies and fortified against its external enemies, then the continent should be open for settlement of independent yeoman farmers, settlers marching across the country for their homesteads, pushing whatever indigenous peoples occupied those lands out of the way, taking slavery with them. There is, before he comes into power, and here is an example where he uh, respects the rule of law, there is a piece of legislation passed in 1820 called the Missouri Compromise which has to do with, for the Louisiana Purchase, 
vast territory out of which multiple states are in the process of being carved, will they become free states or will they become slave states? And the Missouri Compromise of 1820 lays down a, a horizontal latitudinal marker at the 36 degree of longitude, 3630 to be precise. And any territory north of that is to be comprised of free states with the exception of Missouri. Anything south of that will be slave states. This is a carefully crafted compromise to make sure that for each slave state entering the Union, there would be a free state admitted. So it retains the balance between North and South. And when he becomes president of the United States, he does not try and overturn the Missouri Compromise, which some of his successors are going to try to do. So for that, that's an example of law being settled, him accepting that, and him enforcing that uh, as president and chief executive of the United States. The election itself, unlike 1800, it's not complicated in the sense that the popular vote translates into an electoral college victory. I mean, he gets the thing that the reaction against 1824 seemed to demand, which is there's, there's no corrupt bargain going on here. The people to do decide. He's broken away from the Democratic Republican Party, so it is now his party. And again, maybe as a signal of the populist element here, before his party became the Democratic Party, it was the Jacksonian Party. You know, it was named after him. It's really his creation. It's the party of the South and of the West, but of other things too. The complexity in this election, I don't think is electoral mechanics. It's one of the issues on which the election was fought. And it's a hard one to reconstruct because it was so important at the time. It was so heated. Passions, as we will see, ran so high on this question. But the word is really off-putting. It's about tariffs. It's about economic protectionism and the question of whether you could put tariffs on imports to make them expensive, if you could protect homegrown goods, interfere in the market, essentially, against a free trade vision, which would say that you would sell goods and import export goods without federal government interference. And part of the complexity in understanding it, certainly, if you come from outside the United States, if you think about British history of this period, which was also torn up by the tariff question, a tariff question. So in British politics. It's a bit later, it comes to a head in the 1840s, the Corn Laws. But in the British case, the Corn Laws, the imposition of effectively a tariff on imported grain to keep the price of homegrown grain up to support the people who owned the land on which that grain was produced. It was an establishment conservative idea. The tariff was there to protect a kind of agrarian vision of Britain. And it was passionately opposed by the people in the cities, the people in the north, Birmingham, Manchester, the manufacturers, the industrialists who wanted to reduce the price of grain and then have a free market system so that they could trade because they were the outward looking ones. And the defenders of the Corn Laws seemed like the introverted insular agrarians. In the United States, it's the other way around in that the champions of the tariff of interfering in the market artificially keeping prices fixed, were the industrialists, the people in the north. They wanted protection against cheap imported goods, particularly from Industrial Revolution Britain. The people who wanted to get rid of tariffs, who wanted a free trade system, were from the south. It was the slave states. And so there is this puzzle looking at it from the outside. It just sort of and I'm not saying it doesn't feel right because it's true, but it's just hard to square, which is that in this story, the South, the part of the country that Jackson represented, was passionately opposed to the tariff system. They were the free traders because they were trading cotton with Europe. And they were the ones who were outward looking. In a sense, they were the ones who wanted to be plugged into the global economy. And it was the proto-industrialists of the North the wealthy financial elites of the North who wanted protection. They wanted to be protected from the global economy to grow internally. And part of the reason the South hated this is it made goods imported from the North more expensive. And this question becomes absolutely toxic in the Jacksonian era. And in the end, it splits the South. So first of all, I think we need to just try and capture why did it matter so much? Why was this such a heated question? And it turns on a piece of legislation from 1828 just before Jackson becomes president, which 
puts in place a system of tariffs that the South absolutely hated. Why did they hate it so much? They call it the tariff of abominations. It's hard to make tariff history interesting, but it's absolutely essential. And I think you've described the stakes. Britain is the workshop of the world. It's where the Industrial Revolution has advanced the furthest. Although it still has the Corn Laws, but nonetheless, it hasn't stopped the the industrialists from absolutely exploding. Industry is exploding. The architects of the Industrial Revolution are looking forward to a regime of free trade. There's a conviction in Britain that Britain can produce goods more cheaply than anywhere else in the world and turn out better goods. And so the entire world becomes their market. And of course, they under those circumstances, they want a free trade regime. America's the upstart. Its industrial revolution is 20 to 30 year, years behind Britain. There are promising beginnings. The Hamiltonian vision is alive and well in American cities, but there's an understanding that in a fully free market, there's no way American industries can compete against British industries. And the only way in which they can succeed is through a regime of protectionism. And protectionism requires tariffs on imports, especially of manufactured goods, so as to give the fledgling American industries uh, an opportunity to grow and thrive, sell their goods on what is becoming a vast internal market. And because the British sense the potential of the American market, they are intent on getting into it. And the Americans in Jackson, with his expansionary vision of what America could be, also begins to understand the expanse of this internal market. And so it becomes absolutely essential to protect this internal American market for American goods. And that is what commits the North, with a few exceptions of certain sectors of the financial community who are also outward facing, to line up so heavily behind this tariff of abominations. The South has very little industry, very little industry developing there. The the, the regime of slavery has entrenched the cotton as the central industry of the South. Uh, what is the first big industry of the Industrial Revolution? It, it's the spinning and weaving of cloth, and this is what the industrial might of the North of England is, is built on, the mills of Lancashire, uh, Manchester, and the environs. And the South understands that there is now a global market for their product and they can produce their product cheaper than anywhere else in the world because they have the one advantage. It's a terrible advantage, which is their labor isn't just cheap. It is enslaved. It is enslaved. And so they want to preserve that, what economists would call a comparative, in bloodless terms, a comparative advantage in global markets. And they have a worry that if the tariffs are too high and there are re retaliatory tariffs on cotton coming into Britain, that alternative sources of cotton will begin to appear for Britain with its expanding global empire, most notably India and Egypt, that there will be alternative sources and that the lifeblood, which has infused the Southern economy with all kinds of dynamism, will be cut off. And so the interests of the South are dramatically opposed to the interests of the North. And this gets expressed in this ferocious tariff battle that's fought out in the United States between 1828 and 1832. And it puts Jackson in an interesting and complicated position because he is a man of the South. And what's he got to do if the South begins to say, if you don't remove this tariff law, this tariff of abominations, we may nullify the law, which we have the right to do, they claim. And that puts the question of secession on the agenda in what is still a very young and fragile republic. We will get into that in a moment, but let me just underscore your point, the degree to which the South is developing a global orientation, understanding that it's the welfare of its economy, the welfare of its social structure, the workability of its slave system is dependent on the continued expansion of its global orientation. And they see tariffs as putting huge barriers in the way. I should also add, because there are beginning to be restrictions on where the South can expand 
territorially within the continental United States that Southerners are beginning to dream of overseas colonies or colonies in parts of Latin America that will become slave societies into which the South will expand. So there, it's important to understand the South not as an anachronism, something that, in terms of how they see themselves, not as something on the wrong side of history, where, of course, slavery is going to disappear, but the Industrial Revolution having injected tremendous vigor into this economy, giving it not just global interests, but global aspirations. Before we get into how this plays out, and it does become in part a personal battle between Jackson and his vice president, John Calhoun, there's another thing that fascinates me about this. We, we will talk about these elections on the whole because they are as two-party contests, and this is the evolution of a new party system. So the opposed party to the Democratic Party are going to become known as the Whigs, and they will eventually evolve into what we have come to know as the Republican Party. So this is happening. We're still a way off from that. In this period of transition, there are other parties are being created and trying to sort of establish a foothold. And one of the parties that's created in the North and is actually quite powerful in this period and has pretty powerful allies is what's known as the Anti-Masonic Party. So it's literally a conspiracy theory party. They, you know, they could have called themselves, if they had the term, the conspiracy theory party. They believe that there was a Freemasonry plot to subvert America and the Freemasons stood for France. So we're still going back to some of that. You know, the Freemasons were implicated in the French Revolution. They stood for foreign ideas coming into the United States, but also secret cabals that the Freemasons were obviously a secret society and they were pulling strings behind the scenes. So it's proper paranoid style politics. It was a powerful movement, the anti-Masonic movement. It had some very powerful allies, including John Quincy Adams. And it was nativist. I mean, one word for this is as the South was looking internationally, how, how can we survive? We can only survive by plugging ourselves into a global economic system, a free trade system, because we got this one great advantage, slave labor. Also, maybe expansion overseas, imperial expansion, which is what the other powers were doing. The North was looking inward, holding on to what it's got, suspicious of foreigners. That strand which goes against the idea that the South is the insular part and the North is the expansive part, which you might have if you just thought about slave versus free. Free sounds expansive. Slave sounds like you you pulled up the drawbridge. The North was where the nativism was. The South was where the expansive vision was. And Northern nativism was really strong. So Jackson is against this. Jackson is the man of the South and the West, the, the expander, including the military expander, his opponents in the North, in a sense, they were the ones pulling up the drawbridge. I mean, that vision of America is something that we now protect. We're the ones who were born here, and these foreign ideas are coming in and subverting it. That runs through the Whig Party through to the Republican Party. You might even say all the way through to the Republican Party today. Yes, very much so. And the heart of the nativist party and the heart of the anti-Masonic party is in the North, not the South. And it fits with a kind of protectionist mindset. If you're going to protect against free trade, you protect against ideas, and you also may want to protect against the free movement of people. Now, complicating the picture is that the North is beginning to fill up with foreign peoples, especially the Irish. Irish immigration had been part of the United States from the beginning, sometimes what's called Scots-Irish, and that would have been Jackson's ethnic identity. So Scots-Irish are Protestants who moved from Scotland to Ireland and then came to the U.S. Uh, but by the 1830s, the numbers of Irish immigrants, Catholic immigrants, are increasing. And the entry of Catholicism on a mass basis into the United States is making a lot of people nervous because they sense and they accuse the Irish of being devoted to an autocrat, the Pope, that is not going to respect democratic practice in the United States. So the North is the site of the most intense nativist activity. And it's also the place where immigrants are beginning to populate the region because of there's demand for their labor in the United States. 
And of course, the economic logic here is that the North is importing cheap immigrant labour. The South at this point can't import slave labour because we're coming to the end of slavery and certainly the end of the slave trade. But the South is built on enslaved labour. The North is going to have to be built on immigrant labour. So nativism is a reaction against the economic logic of the North, which is this is the engine of its uh, its future prosperity. And again, that logic is is not unfamiliar today. Racist and anti-Catholic sentiment is obviously very strong in the South, but in this period, it's being felt most intensely in the North. Not anti-racist logic, but animosity toward Catholics and whether the American Republic can continue to be the American Republic if the North suddenly fills up with people who are slaves to the Pope, which is how Catholics were seen at the time. So in that context, it makes sense that the nativist parties are appearing and have their greatest support in the North rather than in the South. It should also be said, as we talk about the emergence of a second party system, it makes it sound like the contours of this party system were set and regular. But for the people in the 1820s, they didn't really know what the future of party politics was going to hold. They knew that they were experimenting with new parties, parties taking on new roles, new tasks. And so if you're living in the 1820s, what would make you think that the Democratic Party, Jackson's party, is the wave of the future or that the Whigs would be the wave of the future? Perhaps your single-issue party, the anti-Masonic party, or perhaps a party against drink, which is going to become prominent later on, is going to become a prominent party. In other words, people are living in a world where which parties will come to dominate American politics is as yet unclear. And even though we can, from the vantage point of today, see that of course, the Democrats and the Whigs were going to form the second party system. In the 1820s and early 1830s, they don't yet have the confidence that this so-called party system is, in fact, a system that's going to last from election to election. And that encourages the people as they get involved in suffrage, not only to vote, but to say, I want a political party that's going to express who I am and what I want to see happen in the United States. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As you say, in this ferment, and it was chaos, a lot of it, Jackson is in a really interesting and complicated position. So he wins in 1828 as the candidate of the South and the South and the West, but mainly the South, are very opposed to the abominable tariff system and they want to reject it. And it's been foisted on them by Congress, they feel. So they want a president who will stand up to it. And eventually it takes four years but Jackson, his administration, arrives at a compromise, which is a new tariff arrangement in 1832. And through this period, Jackson president, his vice president, John Calhoun from South Carolina, who is probably the most vocal spokesman for the anti-tariff faction. He really does think it threatens the whole survival of the United States. South Carolina cannot live in a system where these tariffs are imposed by the federal government. And he asserts that through the language of the ideas of state rights. So it's the right of South Carolina to decide how it's going to be oriented in, the, in any economic system, both the American economic system and a global economic system. It cannot have this imposed from the outside. He's vice president. Jackson is president. And Jackson and his administration come up with a new compromise in 1832, which strikes off some of these tariffs, but allows some of them to stay. And he and Calhoun break over this. And Calhoun will not let it stand. The compromise, if anything, is worse. He can't bear it. The previous one felt like it had been foisted on them by the old party system. But here's the new party system producing something which is almost as bad. And sometimes the thing that's almost as bad is the thing that triggers the most extreme reaction. And he more or less starts to say that if this continues, South Carolina will have to secede from the Union. The language of secession is everywhere in 1832. And Jackson, who didn't get elected 
by any stretch of the imagination on a secessionary ticket, but he did get elected on an anti-tariff ticket, is president, and he has to decide what to do. And what he does is really striking. Calhoun is, has claimed for South Carolina and every southern state, every state in the union to nullify laws that they don't like the nullification crisis and claims that the United States was formed out of states that made a compact with each other with the understanding that the compact would continue to serve the interests of particular states. And if a state reached the point where they felt that was no longer the case, then they had the right to nullify a law. Now, he doesn't immediately say this is secession, but the logic is clear. And this is the logic that Jackson grasps immediately, and it enrages him, the idea that he is president of the United States. Uh, he's a native son of South Carolina's, even though he had not been there for decades, he still feels an affinity and an attachment to it. And he says, under no circumstances will I allow the government of South Carolina or the people of South Carolina to secede from this union. They do not have the right to do so. And they do not have the right to decide which laws apply to them. They do not have the right. Once Congress has decided and approved a law, and if the Supreme Court has deemed this law to be constitutional, they have no right to nullify that law, to abrogate it, to pretend it doesn't exist. That is a right that they simply do not have. And he sits down to draft uh, what he will call his nullification proclamation, thousands of words that he writes in a frenzy and very passionate and imparts eloquent prose in which the power of this man and this and we might even say the savagery that lies just below the surface comes through. And he, if you read this text and if you, if, if you read it, you will not just feel its power, but you will come to the conclusion that Jackson's conclusion is unmistakable. If you persist in this South Carolinians, even though I have affection for South Carolina, even though I'm a man of the South and West, even though I support states' rights, if you persist in this, I will war on you and I will destroy you. I will destroy you. This is the message that comes through in the Nullification Proclamation of 1832. Should I read an excerpt? Go for it. The anger and the conviction and the threat embodied in these words. Declare that you will never take the field unless the star-spangled banner of your country shall float over you, that you will not be stigmatized when dead and dishonored and scorned while you live, as the authors of the first attack on the constitution of your country. It's destroyers of the constitution you cannot be. You may disturb its peace. You may interrupt the course of its prosperity. You may cloud its reputation for stability, but its tranquility will be restored, its prosperity will return, and the stain upon its national character will be transferred and remain an internal blot on the memory of those who caused the disorder. So I will kill you, and I will also make sure you get the blame. Yes. These are uncompromising words. I will attack you. I will destroy you. You will forever carry an eternal blot. What's so striking about this, and it does go back to something that I raised in the last episode, it's the man of the South who is threatening to destroy South Carolina, or at least the men of South Carolina who take to the field against his army. He will assemble an army to kill them. And it quite quickly diffuses the crisis in the sense that they do very quickly after that reach a compromise that all sides can abide by. It feels like it does somewhat depend on the fact that you know, there's a sort of cliched version of this that comes out in various different forms, that you have to have been on one side to turn against that side. Sometimes it's the Nixon in China thing. Only Nixon could open up China. Only the opponent of a certain kind of thing can then plausibly be the champion of it. Here is Jackson, who got elected with Calhoun to oppose what 
the federal government was trying to do to the South, talking this ferocious language in defence of the constitution he's sworn to uphold. And it works. I mean, it succeeds. I don't know whether he cowed them into submission or whether simply they realised that the stakes were too high. And it's very hard to imagine a proclamation like that issued by, I mean, it wouldn't have been issued by John Quincy Adams, but you know what I mean, issued by a man of the North doing anything other than inflaming the situation? Does it have to come from inside the world that it is threatening to destroy to work? More plausible as well, actually, maybe, not just because he's a military man. And the fact that this is coming from a man of the South rather than the Adams family of New England. John Quincy Adams himself issued very eloquent statements about freedom for African-Americans and in some court cases. and but. His eloquence on this matter would not have carried the same weight, and he could not have spoken with this kind of authority. It's partly that Jackson is a man of the South. It's partly because he's the most celebrated military commander in the United States, and everyone knows about his record of military victory and the savagery and the uncompromising character of his warfare upon those who he took to be his opponents. So the Southerners understand this language coming from a Southerner. And I think it did scare them and it did intimidate them. And it brought a short-term resolution to this problem and a compromise on the tariff, which worked for a certain amount of time. But one wonders what was really going on in the internal reaches of Jackson's mind because both Calhoun and Jackson knew as men of the South that the issue here wasn't just about the tariff. It was about slavery. The tariff was so important because it opened the world to American cotton on which the plantation slave system of the South depended for its health and welfare. Jackson knew this, and he had to know at some level that there would be an instance in the future where the law that a Southern state might try and nullify would not have to do with the tariff, but would have to do with the law related to the slave system of the South. What would he have, what would he have done? Or he must be thinking, what will I do if I'm confronted with the law that threatens existentially the slave system? This is what Calhoun has in mind. And out of this moment, he's got to continue to develop theory of nullification. And also he's then going to embellish it into a theory of what he calls the concurrent majority. And the concurrent majority is a theory of government that says in order for a law to be valid in the United States, it must not simply have the support of both houses of Congress. It must have the support of both houses of every state legislature giving every state legislature kind of a veto over national legislation. He is worried, Calhoun is worried about the North outdistancing the South. He sees an industrial dynamism in the North that is going to increase its wealth, its sway, its influence. So he's not thinking simply about the tariff. He's thinking about the future of the slave system when it comes to hold a shrunken part in the American Republic, and he sees no alternative but to establish in law and constitutionalism a justification for the South opting out. This is part of his project, and this is a project he's got to continue to develop. And those states that do secede from the Union in 1860 after the election of Abraham Lincoln are going to draw on Calhoun. What is Jackson thinking about this matter in this moment? We don't know, but given given how how keenly he understood this, not just as a constitutional matter, but as a matter for the South and as a man for the South, how did he safeguard his own fears for future threats to the South, which would come over slavery rather than the tariff? The tariff he could handle, slavery he could not. But this is a moment where he is empowering the federal government to act against the Southern state that lays down a precedent 
that had to be troubling to him. As you say, with hindsight, we can see this evolved into a relatively stable party system that lasted for a generation. And yet we also know what was to come in 1860, which is the subject of the next episode. And so with hindsight, it looks like the seeds of the destruction of this system were laid at the beginning. And the seeds of the destruction of this system were actually the split in the Democratic Party. That's what broke it apart, as we'll see in the next episode. Jackson and Calhoun, running mates, running mates in 1828, come to represent these two poles of Southern opinion, not on the slavery question, but on the tariff question. But as you've just described it, it feels like it cannot hold. Something will come not just to break apart the Union, potentially, but to break apart the South. And it is the breaking part of the South that actually triggers the crisis because the Democratic Party can't win presidential elections unless it's united. That's the one absolute sine qua non of Southern politics. The North will win unless the Southern part of the United States holds together as one, electorally, politically. You can see here, can't you, the beginnings of the end? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. One of the variables here and and one of the wild cards had to do with westward expansion or overseas expansion of the slave system. I think you could still think in 1830, 1832, that the future of the South would be vigorous, either because the principles of the Missouri Compromise of 1820 would be overturned and slavery would be able to expand into the Western states, or that the kingdom of cotton and the kingdom of slavery would be able to expand southward into the Caribbean, into Mexico, maybe into the northern reaches of Latin America. So it, it did not settle the question. I think you could still think there is a future here and the South can find its way. But it it was going to depend on the disposition of new states coming into the Union or on the ability of the South to expand beyond the continental borders of the United States. And so it's going to make the issue of westward expansion and the disposition of states in those territories absolutely indispensable and vital to securing a future for the American South. So there was still hope. You know, Calhoun is preparing for Armageddon, but the South in 1832 is also a thriving economic system. And the emergence of the Industrial Revolution and the beginnings of global capitalism have given this system of enslavement a new lease on life. So it's possible to think not just of doomsday, but of of a long life for something that for Southerners was, white Southerners was not simply an economy, a political economy, but a way of life that they treasure deeply. The thing we haven't talked about, we've focused here very much on the South because Jackson represents what is an internal struggle that's being played out on the national stage. There is growing sentiment in the North, abolitionist sentiment, which is splitting Northern politics. So one of the challenges here, if you've got to hold the South together, you've got to hold the North together to win these elections. Two-party systems really put place a huge premium on finding a position that can ally various different groups within your broader constituency. So in the North, there are big divisions. Are we moving towards abolitionism? Are we moving towards a, a firm line on the Missouri Compromise? But nonetheless, just as in the South, there was a sense of Armageddon alongside a feeling that this thing could last, there was a growing feeling in the North that this, this abominable system never mind the tariff of abominations, the abomination, the moral, political abomination of slavery could not be allowed to last. That the Southern system of slavery is prospering in this new global system intensifies anger and fear in the North. It was possible to think 30 years earlier that this was a system of yesteryear, that it would wither away. And the new lease on life that it has been given compels people in the North to disabuse themselves of that notion. And they begin to think we can't simply wait for the day when slavery will die of its own accord. 
washed up on the on some distant beach somewhere where it will cease to matter. We must fight to end it. And as they see Southerners gathering force for territorial expansion, they see a threat to a different kind of expansion, which the North wants. This is the a positive side of the Jeffersonian dream, which attracts Northerners as well as Southerners, the sense that a a family will have its own piece of land and that it'll be worked by free rather than slave labor. This is a dream that intensifies in the North and makes the Northerners intent on making sure that a free labor regime will thrive in the West. And it makes them much more aware of the threat of slave expansion in the West. And then there are the abolitionists who say, forget about Western expansion. That's not our most pressing issue. This system of slavery is an abomination. And it has to end. All men are created equal. This is America. That's not its destiny. We will not tolerate it. So as the South is gearing up for a long future antagonism to the South, precisely because of its vigor, is intensifying in the North. The next episode in this series is going to take us forward to 1860, the election that comes just before the Civil War, and the election that sees the arrival on the American stage on the world stage of the man that many people still think is the greatest of all American presidents, Abraham Lincoln. How did he win? And why does it matter so much? To get our new free fortnightly newsletter, just click on the link that you'll find in the show description for this episode, or follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, and you'll find the link in our link tree. It's free. It's every fortnight. And it's a guide to this podcast reading, writing, watching, and listening that goes along with these episodes. We are aware there was a problem just for a few hours on Thursday morning with the link in our episode description for the last episode to sign up for the newsletter. That's all been sorted. So if you click on the link with today's episode, you'll be able to sign up just fine. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.